All right. Hello. My name is Kendra. I'm Olivia. And I'm Lindsay. And this is Our Music Oddcast. Today we're going to be talking about the phenomenon of people waking up from comas to the song Free Fallen. <laughs> and no, I'm not making this up. <laughs> so there was an episode of pop-up video in the late 90s. Could have been early 2000s, but I think it was late 90s. A great show. Yeah. I learned so Very informative. <laughs> But if anybody can find the episode that has this fact, I will send you a free sticker because I can't remember which video. And I think there's, I don't think it's a Tom Petty um, video, but I think it's one that has, like the video has a patient in a coma for some reason mm-hmm. Then they talk about it. But I, I went back through a bunch of episodes and could not find it at all. So yeah, free sticker, someone, if you can remember, can find this can send it to us. <laughs> Where are you watching pop-up video just on like YouTube? Yeah. I might do that when I get home actually. Yeah. That sounds great. I want a sticker. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, so we took a little bit of a break this summer. Um, because summer. Yeah. And schedules, work, and we got to see some cool bands. Yep. Who'd you guys see? Um, I'd say my top ones. I just got back from Riot Fest. Yeah. So I got to see oh, Bikini stop. Kill and Slayer and the B-52s. Ironically, seeing Slayer like three days after getting a Slayer tattoo. So <laughs> feeling pretty fucking proud of myself right now. Um, oh, we were we were supposed to do this one night and uh, uh, one of my friends had an extra ticket to see Beck. And so uh, I went with him. He had asked Kendra to go, but she's like, sorry, got the podcast. And I was like, I'm canceling the podcast. Sorry. But also you were the only one of the three of us that hadn't seen Beck yet. So. Yeah, that's true. We had to like complete the... And it's totally understandable to cancel, yeah. to go see back. Yeah. I was like, you know what? I'm like just, just going to do it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Don't blame you. I saw Paul McCartney. I think I probably talked about this, you know, other episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and Brian Wilson. Nice. Yeah. Which is fun. I don't think I saw anybody else. I also saw Blink-182. Oh, yeah? How was that? <laughs> it was really cathartic. <laughs> I was like, fuck, I forgot I knew all the words to this song. Because, you know, like, you go through that phase where you're like pretending like Blink-182 wasn't like a catalyst to get you into punk rock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then like you're just lying to yourselves. <laughs> like anyone that's in their 30s that was like, I didn't like Blink-182 before I liked Black Flag, go fuck yourself because you're a liar. <laughs> you are a goddamn liar. Um, honestly, out of everybody's like Riot Fest videos and stuff that I was watching, the uh, the most exciting, like most lit set looked like it was the village people. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, I didn't catch them. <laughs> really? I, I just like, I... I mean, people were going absolutely nuts. Like Sarah, uh, Sarah like posted it, and I was like, "Whoa!" And she's like, "I can't believe I'm doing the YMCA with the actual village people." <laughs> it's just funny to me imagining like all these like old punks or something having a little bit of time, and they're like, oh, "Let's go see the village oh, people." people were losing like, their, <laughs> people were losing their shit for the B52s. Also, oh yeah, oh, I'm sure really that looked really fun. fun. I missed a couple bands because after Patty Smith played, we were like, we already had pretty good spots for that, and we're mm-hmm. like, okay. I'm committed. Like, we're staying here. Bikini Kill was on that stage. Yeah. yeah. Never realized the Racketeers had that many fucking songs, though. Mm-hmm. So I have nothing against Jack White, but when you're waiting on your feet for, like, an hour and a half for a band that you've been waiting to see for, like, 20 years. Oh, see, I thought that they was, played at the same time. No, so. the stages are next to each other. Gotcha. Okay. So they're on the other stage. So I wasn't really paying attention. Also, like... I will admit, I've never heard of them before, <laughs> so I had no idea. And then I was like, halfway through, I was like, what is this dad rock? And I finally looked at the screen, I'm like, oh, is that Jack White? It's Jack White. <laughs> I'm like, well, he is a dad, so I'm not wrong. You're Did you guys see the video online? There's some girl at a concert freaking out because um, she used to get rid of her cell phone when Jack White was playing. 
It's it's really no. funny. You'd have to watch it, but she's just whining about how she had to go stand in a certain section to use her phone because you had to put your phone in a bag and um, not have it out while he was playing, and she was super pissed about it. It's it's funny if you can find it online. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Also, props to him for making that a rule. I know. That's cool. I try not to. Sometimes you want, like, especially you know during McCartney, I did whip it out for one song just yeah. to send it to my sister, but I do try when I'm watching a show to not have a phone out. Yeah. I absolutely have to. I'm guilty. Like, I even, wrote, I even I mean, wrote a I like song get... making fun of myself for it because I'm like, yeah, I go to shows, I take videos, look at my photos. And I'm like, you think I'm making fun of the audience, but I'm definitely making fun of myself. But I love watching people's videos that they take at shows. I do too. So. I, like, I like to take like just one or two decent ones for yeah. you know, social media just to, you know, yeah. show what you're doing. Not gonna like record the whole show or anything. But. Yeah. But I do get excited about that sometimes yeah. too. Yeah. All right. So tell us all about Tom okay. Petty. So he was born in Gainesville, Florida in 1950 to Earl and Kitty Petty. (laughs) Kitty Petty. I was saying Penny for some reason. That's a great fucking name. What is with all these people's moms having great names? (laughs) Kitty Petty. All the episodes. It's like you pet the kitty. Yeah, that's true. It's just amazing. (laughs) Kind of like Katy Perry, but Kitty Petty. Yeah. Way better. But so much better than Katy Perry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Speaking of, I, I heard that she and Orlando Bloom now um, are part owners of the the Bragg apple cider vinegar business. Really? Really no random. Idea. Yeah. It's really good for um, yeah. heartburn, acid yeah, reflux. Yeah, I drank it for a while. I hate vinegar. some health benefits. It, it was kind of gross, but I if you mix it, it with honey and other stuff, it yeah. tastes Yeah, I believe you, but I still, no. Yeah. Well, I used to just have like really, really bad like acid reflux for a little bit. And like I wasn't used to it, so like I didn't have any medicine or anything around. So yeah. it was like apple cider vinegar, and I was like, mm, okay. And I only take like two sips of it, and it was totally gone. Yeah, it was weird. This type. So you know they endorse that. I respect it. Yeah. Maybe they have it's a healthy GERD thing. or something. I don't know. I think they <laughs> saved the company too. I think that they weren't you know doing as well, or maybe couldn't afford to keep it going. Really? So yeah. I know a lot of people sweater. drink apple cider vinegar for uh, like weight loss and stuff. That's like yeah. a, that's like a Fergie thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry, did you want to say something else? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Um, interesting. His father was half Native, well, because was because he, he died, but um, <coughs> half Native American. His mother was Cherokee. So you wouldn't think so when you look at Tom Petty, but... That's um, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Skip around a little bit. He had kind of a rough childhood. His dad was abusive, um, not all the time, but he, he had a temper and he had a drinking and gambling problem. Mm. And he started beating Tom when he was four years old. Damn. Um, pretty bad, too. Yeah, he had shot a slingshot at a car when he was four or five. And he, the, you know, the guy came up to the door and said, you know, your kid did this. And he beat him so bad that he had welts all over his body, which is terrible. Because, I mean, when you think about a four or five-year-old, how tiny they are. Yeah, yeah that's insane. You couldn't imagine, you know, even yelling at him because they'd probably cry, but... So he had a really rough relationship with his dad. He also, he didn't fish or hunt, play sports, and didn't really do well at school, so they were constantly butting heads. And when he got into music a little bit later, his dad didn't really appreciate it until you know, he got famous. But he started you know, getting into music really, he liked records and stuff, but not anything crazy until he saw Elvis when he was nine years old. His yeah, his mm. uncle worked um, in like the TV, film business, and I think his last name was Jernigan. And Elvis made an appearance, I think, but he was just really impressed with. He said that he 
he was like a beautiful looking man and he just liked how he was all dressed up and everything. So then he started listening to records, you know, pretty heavily. And then when the Beatles made an appearance on the Ed Sullivan show, when he was 13 years old, that changed everything for him. His dad did buy him his first guitar and that he said it was because he wouldn't shut up about it. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, <laughs> pretty quickly he started, you know, playing music with some of his friends like I said, you know, he wasn't really into a lot of other things. He formed the band The Sundowners. Petty played bass for them, and it had um, Richie Henson, Robert Crawford, Dennis Lee. Petty was 14 at the time. They played in a space that his it used to be his father's grocery store. He was a salesman, and he had a grocery store for a while. David Mason played in the band for a little bit. He eventually went on to be a member of Todd Rundgren's Utopia and played with Jackson Brown's touring band. And he was um, part of the Continentals, too, before that. So uh-huh. they played what were called socials, which were frat parties. <laughs> just so funny. Oh, and they had... Um, <laughs> it's just funny because it's like, I don't know, the socials. Yeah. I know at first I was like, oh, that sounds pretty wholesome, frat parties. No. <laughs> well, one of the the shows that they had, they, I think they had a couple shows lined up one night, Um Tom Petty got in a, a fight with Dennis Lee and got like the absolute shit beat out of him and was no longer in the band after that. I think they, you know, they kicked him out too. But they said that all these frat guys were surrounded him and were cheering on the <laughs> everything. In, yeah, I can see it. <laughs> yeah. He soon after met Rodney and Ricky Rucker and started playing music with them. Oh, and Dickie Underwood. And he started singing. Um, so he started playing and singing with them, their band was called The Epics. And when, um, so he started playing in The Epics with Rodney and Ricky Rucker and Dickie Underwood. And they played at Rougher Places. Tom Leadon, who was Tom's neighbor, joined. And Dan Felder. Oh, and Petty, he liked the band, but he, you know, like I said, they played at Rougher Spots. But he quit a few times just because, you know, he wasn't really enjoying where things were going. He went to art school briefly, but never attended a single class. Um, (laughs) What a rebel. Yeah. Damn, art school is already for like the slackers. Yeah, his dad kind of made him do it. He, you know, was trying to avoid the draft at the time and Uh, um, he didn't really have anything else he was doing. He was tired of him, you know, sleeping late and um, (laughs) staying out late at night. So yeah, he did that, but then had to soon come home after that. He, He had an LSD epiphany. Um, after leaving art school in Tampa and realized that he, you know, definitely wanted to pursue music. He, the the remaining... (laughs) Sorry, LSD epiphany. Like, that's a band name right there. Or, like, a song. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I'm not going to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, who else has had one of those? But I'm not. Nope. Nope. Just going to leave that one. Don't do it. Leave that one alone. (laughs) (laughs) He started playing with the band again, but they renamed themselves to Mudcrutch. Um, that name sucks. It kind yeah, of, they you know, talk about that too. Like they often said, "Where were you?" It kind of reminds me of like um, it sounds kind of like a new metal band name. It does. Mudcrutch. Oh my god, <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> you no, know, my dad was saying something about that one time, and I was like, "Who?" And uh, he's like, "You know, like Tom Petty's old band." And I was like, "What?" <laughs> Their stuff's good. Yeah, but yeah, the, yeah. It's it's it just is, the it curse. A the curse of having it. a shitty name for your band. No, it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Tom Lenahan joined after Rodney Rucker left the band. Ricky left eventually. I think it was so he could, it had something to do with like dove hunting season. He didn't want to, you know, work on songs. Um, 
But Petty was... Wait, what? He wanted to go hunt some doves instead? Could you imagine hunting a dove? No. I thought that was terrible. It sounds like so (laughs) (laughs) anti-prince. Like, now we know why the doves cry, bitch. Yeah. (laughs) Because you're out hunting them instead (laughs) of recording songs. (laughs) Murder! (laughs) Sorry. And it was like a little kind of, you know, flip back, but I guess his dad could like wrestle alligators. That's so tight. Yeah. God damn it. You're from it. Florida. That's what you yeah. got to do. That's so what tight. you have to do to survive. Yeah. His nice. dad grew up in like this little tiny shack in Florida because um, I don't think his mom could get work anywhere because she was Native American. And his that dad probably did that work. depression era too. Right. Well, like, well, when they. No, yeah. Just, well, they were talking about. Just when, racism. Yeah. You know, just racism. Mm-hmm. In some places, which is terrible. It's sad. Yeah. Ridiculous. So, anyway, back to. Right past dove hunting. Um, so he was looking for some more serious members, and he wanted to write his own music. Started working with Randall Marsh and his friend Mike Campbell. And around that time, Petty's parents got in a really bad accident. His mom had been sick for a while, and they were driving, and his dad was drunk. But it wasn't. It actually wasn't his fault. There was a car in the middle of the road, and I think he, you know, kind of went over over a hill and slammed into him and they were the brother his younger brother Bruce was in the car as well they're all hurt pretty bad and they took the parents to the hospital and oddly they left like the injured child on the side of the road like people had what yeah they did which is nuts um because some people drove by and they saw like Bruce like bloodied by a wrecked car and somebody picked him up and they took him home luckily he you know survived survived yeah holy shit yeah you know yeah. what? The parents are worse off than the kid. Let's just go ahead and leave this child. Right. Yeah. Like that. Oh, my God. But his mom was in pretty bad shape afterwards. And then I think she had cancer. They didn't, you know, I didn't, didn't say for sure in some of the stuff I was looking at. But mm-hmm. she, you know, really got sick after that. So back to the band. They were playing at some clubs. They were playing at a local club that was a strip club. And he was making them play a lot of covers and stuff. And. Tom Lennon got in a fight with the owner of the club over, you know, comedy he'd said about getting like bigger bands. And so they ended up firing him as vocalist. And that's when, you know, Petty started singing with the band hmm. um, or singing more because he was still yeah. singing. But after that, they, you know, really started to focus and they recorded their um, single Depot Street and spent some time in L.A. trying to distribute the, le- the demo and get with some record companies and possibly get um, contract. Um, funny story, but he was driving around and he found a phone booth and he was looking for the, um, the phone book so he could get some addresses and phone numbers. And he found a list sitting in the phone booth that had about 20 record companies and phone numbers and addresses on there, which, you know, (laughs) that's like one of those things where people are like, I'm praying to God for a sign. Yeah. That's the big sign. (laughs) sign. He said he was really excited about it, but it was also kind of discouraging because someone else, you know, obviously was there for the same reason that had left a list behind for some reason. He probably played them the song over the phone. They're like, you suck. (laughs) (laughs) London Records was interested in them, wanted to sign them, and they, you know, they talked about it seriously. They wanted to go with them, but they were convinced to sign with Shelter instead. Yeah, so they, you know, started working with Shelter and moved, I think they, yeah, it was moved out to LA and they were working on stuff and to start their first recording they, with the demo, it wasn't really going anywhere, so they they dropped them. Um, they wanted to keep Petty, but not the rest of the band. So he secured a spot for Mike Campbell. Yeah, there's so many people that are in the story that worked with him at some point or other that either went on to become famous musicians or they you know mm-hmm. stayed, stayed with him forever. 
and did other side projects, but it's a little overwhelming when you go through all the names. Um, and I yeah. left a ton of people out too, just because you know, time. time. Yeah. <laughs> he was his writing partner, buddy, and kind of, you know, his second like go-to guy, second in command. The rest of the band was let go, as I said. It's so he, cold. I know. He <laughs> but, didn't want to do it. But, but at the same time, if he was already bound by contract, yeah. you're kind of fucked if you don't. Yeah. He sent his wife and young daughter back to Florida. They had gotten married a week before they went out to LA when wow. they got the contract. Yeah. And she had the baby soon afterwards. He thinks that they, she was pregnant at the wedding, but just hadn't told him yet. <laughs> I'm sorry. Most, I'm like, you I, had like the most satisfying smile. I like to fly. Wide eyed and like smiling. Like, <laughs> like, I am cute. the fucking karate kid right now. <laughs> I feel like this happens a lot when we have like pauses and stuff. And no, yeah, it's okay. You're always like snatching flies. I like it. It's satisfying. I know. Plus I'm like right by all these beautiful flowers, which is like definitely attracting them. So mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. they're like right by me. One of their songs, Lost in Your Eyes, started to get a little bit of attention and got the attention of um, Leon Russell, producer who wanted to work with Petty on a this album idea that he had. He wanted to use a different producer for each song, but um, it was kind of cool because he wanted to work with really big producers. Funny story, but Petty had, when he first got out to LA, he had house that for like a random person for a while that he, he never met and it ended up being Leon Russell, who he you know worked with later, but... Um, the guy had no idea that that's who was watching his house for him. Just that's like some awesome. random dude was. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he started going to his house every day to work on songs that they were going to write together. Um, I thought this was really funny, but one of the people that was like hanging out at his house regularly at the time um, was Gary Busey, who yes. was wait, by the wait. name of Teddy Jack Eddie. That's great. What, what was the like tagline from that movie about a tank? Uh, wait, are you talking about... Uh, with uh, Gary Busey in it. Are you talking about butthorn? Yeah, it's like, it's like, screw you, butthorn. <laughs> like, he says butthorn, like, so many times in that movie. Oh, the joy that brings to me. What I was that movie called? I can't even remember, but it's, like, it's got, like, a tank in it, and it's, like, making a big deal about some, like, tank as, like, this, oh. like, crazy weapon that they they have to protect. And It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. He just, like, pops out of nowhere. He's like, screw you, butthorn. It's like, yes. Um, I didn't even know he was a musician before he was, you know, well, during and, um, you know, before he became a big actor. Which so is funny. funny. Yeah. So some of the producers that they wanted to work with, um, Brian Wilson, he was suggested, but he wasn't, you know, very well at the time. George Harrison came to, you know, work on some stuff with them, but nothing ever materialized. Um, Terry Melcher, he ended up hanging out once, you know, there a lot with a lot of people, but once again, nothing ever. Oh, and he brought, it was funny, he brought Sylvester Stallone with him while they were, so we ended up meeting all these random people. So Terry awesome. Melcher, who like the Manson family thought was living at the house. Yeah. They, yeah. Cause he was working with, um, the Beach Boys mm-hmm. and, you know, really good yeah. friends with Dennis Wilson and they had kind of used the, like some of the women in the family as like their own like little personal prostitutes for a while. Yeah. And promised um, Charles Manson. Deals and stuff. Yeah, and I mean, they ended up even, you know, stealing one of his songs, which is... Mm-hmm. So they kind of egged him song? on. The Beach Boys. They recorded oh. one of his songs. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Also, the line is, bird season's over, butthorn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> bird- <laughs> we should say that to the dove hunter. I know what you were about to say. <laughs> we should have said this earlier. Bird season's over. <laughs> Go back to 
<laughs> recording. Bird season's over, butthorn. <laughs> you missed your chance, butthorn. <laughs> Maybe we should edit this so we can go back. And... <laughs> nah. I know. Oh my god, that's so good. <laughs> it's that one Dove's cry. It's bird season's over, butthorn. Oh, I'm gonna... Yeah, I'm gonna have to use that. Now that you've jogged my memory. It's so good. He started to realize that this was never gonna turn into anything. So he decided um, to focus on assembling a band again. He didn't want to be a solo artist, and he got a hold of... Yeah, um, the keyboardist with um, Mud Crutch was Ben Mutt Tench. I don't know why I couldn't remember that. Okay, so Ben Mutt Tench, he was a really talented... um, He grew up in Florida with them. He was a talented piano player and was their keyboardist, but he was the only classically trained one of the group. So... um, he brought a lot to, and a lot, all these guys could sing and play and do a lot of stuff. So it was just a good, he always had like a really good band. So he had Ben Mont, he got a hold of Ben Mont and brought drummer Stan Lynch and bassist Ron Blair, and they became the Heartbreakers. They were briefly called Nitro. And <laughs> <laughs> okay, have you guys ever heard the band Nitro? No. Um, I, I, yeah, I think so. I, I'm familiar with the, it's amazing. It's like, when hair metal was kind of dying out, mm-hmm. this band called Nitro came out, and it was like hair metal on crack. Oh. Like, they had the biggest hair, the most ridiculous studded leather yeah. bodysuits and everything, and the dude, Michelangelo, he had a four-necked guitar. Oh, jeez. It was I don't think I'd heard them, but I think I, I can picture oh, what they looked if, like. If you're bored and, and you want to giggle and just appreciate all its glory, <laughs> Nitro... Night train. Another freight. No, it's freight train or something like. Yeah, it's freight train. It's like another freight train. Another freight train coming. Oh, it's so absolutely ridiculous. And like the guitar solos and everything. And that dude's like, the guy, the singer of Nitro can actually break glass with his voice. He's the guy oh. that they went to for MythBusters. Like, oh, so he's cool. actually knows how to do it. It's amazing. Wow. Sorry, go on. Freight train. So he's got the he's of- got the range of like Mariah Carey, but used in a different way. It's yeah. a, <laughs> It's actually like a weird like off note that does it uh so it's like literally like oh god and it's like volume yeah yeah huh they were almost called tom petty and the king bees too tom petty and the king bees yes that sounds kind of tight yeah that sounds fine yeah it's a better name than mud crutch but i like the the heartbreakers Heartbreakers yeah definitely the superior choice so in 1976, they came out with their first album that included singles, American Girl, Breakdown, and they didn't really hit it in the, the U.S., but they did really well in England. That kind of surprises me because everybody kind such of just like thinks a US of, band. yeah, everybody thinks of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers as being such like an Americana, like, yeah. you know, it, it just so, seems kind of strange. Yeah, they loved them. They even, um, fans like rushed one of the, rushed the stage in one of their shows in Wales. That's awesome. Yeah. They were touring Europe pretty extensively for a while, and they were traveling from Holland to Germany, and Stan Lynch got caught with a... They'd bought a bunch of hash, and he got caught with a a pipe with some residue at the airport, and they got stuck. They were detained there for a while, but they had a television appearance, and they ended up getting out without getting in any sort of trouble. But at the time, Ron Blair, he ate like a brick of it. So they wouldn't get in any further trouble. And they had a performance right afterwards and he did, you know, played amazing. So that's not a... He ate a brick of what? Hash. Hash. (laughs) I could see that being hyper concentration for sure. (laughs) But also like, how did he not get so sick? Oh, I know. You think you just puke it right back up. That's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. When they came back to the U.S., they still didn't really have much of a buzz. 
I saw Except this... for the guy on all the hash. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that was... <laughs> I saw this random fact online, and I have no idea if it's true, but they said that their tour manager on their first like U.S. tour ended up blowing over $30,000 on cocaine. Probably. <laughs> Which I think they talk about... I read um, the book Petty by Warren Zanes, and he... I think he talks about it too, but I couldn't remember exactly what was said. I feel like it's a great be book, like by the, the way. rule of like anyone, like if you ever get famous, the first thing you do is don't do cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> After the first album was starting to get successful, I guess he bought, Tom Petty bought a Camaro in cash. Tight. And <laughs> there was a story where he drove around with um, Springsteen. He ro- drove around with Bruce Springsteen listening to eight tracks just up and down the coast, which is funny because it was like his big splurge spending the money and then he ended up hanging out with Springsteen. He'd heard the record and wanted to to meet up with them. So so it's like Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen driving up and down the coast in a Camaro listening to each other's records? Well, they were listening to it. They went and bought, they went to like a Tower Records and they bought a bunch of eight tracks and they, they like one of them was the Rolling Stones and just a bunch of other this stuff. This is like a dream. I know. Mm-hmm. Like, he had so many cool experiences. Like the that's ultimate like American people. dream. Like that's a fucking yeah. music video right there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's also like, it could be like a side story in like that coffee and cigarettes movie or something. I know. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, or like a, yeah, like a documentary or something. Independent film. Mm-hmm. Yep. They started working on their, well, they put their second album out, um, You're Gonna Get It, in 1978. He was like really inspired to write songs, um, and the writing started, you know, becoming an easier thing for him. He was a very hardworking guy all along. He put a lot into, you know, kind of keeping the band going and just keeping them, you know, in the right direction and writing the songs, recording all the time. But um, the band just kept getting better and better. And oh, and this was around the time that they decided to no longer do the five-way split with their pay. And it was because of all the work that Petty was putting into things. Some of the guys were kind of like partying a lot and, you know, just kind of hanging out. So he he wanted to take more of the role as like the leader of the band, negotiate better um, Mm -hmm. options for him. And, you know, that was part of it that he ended up getting paid a little bit more. They weren't very happy about it, but they also really liked what they were doing and liked the the band and the music. So they they didn't. That's legit. Like, you know, I'm always like harping on people. Yeah. But like, yeah. The fact that it started off equal and that everybody like begrudgingly was like, you know what, that's, I understand. That makes sense. There was also, they were playing with the Kinks and Ray Davies was um, like during soundtrack, they had moved all of their instruments like up to the very front of the stage. So the Heartbreakers had like no room to, to put their stuff out there. And he was kind of pissed off by that. But then Ray Davies wouldn't stop playing Tired of Waiting. And the, they started to leave. They were like, okay, fine, you know, fuck this. So they packed up their stuff. And the drummer, Mick Avery, he saw what was happening. And he tried to go, he like moved his drums back. So they had like a little spot to play. Cause think about like how much room that would mm-hmm. you know, give you. And I guess he and Ray Davies ended up getting in a fist fight over because he was trying to get him to stop playing um, Tired of Waiting. <laughs> so that's, wait, so who was the opener? Um, they were they were supposed to be the opener, but during sound check, Ray Davies was you know um, just being a dick. Yeah, he was just being yeah. a dick. Um, yeah. Also, like I like that's so rude. Yeah, like, that's band's, horrible. Like, I get you're a headliner, but like quit being such a prima donna and get your shit off the stage, or at least like make room. Like you can always push it forward later. Yeah, don't be an asshole. And that was part of the reason too that he wanted to take on that role because he decided that he no longer wanted to be an opening band for anybody. Mm-hmm. They'd just been offered. Um, to open for the Rolling Stones, which would have been huge for them, but he was like, nope, not doing it. (laughs) 
on that album, they also had singles, I Need to Know, and Listen to Her Heart. Then Damn the Torpedoes came out in 1979. They sought out Patti Smith's producer, Jimmy Levine, for this. And at the time, MCA kind of got rid of Shelter Records, but the band was still bound by contract and they would just get sold to like whatever, you know, wherever direction they were going to go at Mm -hmm. the time. They decided to fight the record company and because that also took all their their um, prior publishing they didn't right. really understand what they were doing when they signed the contract That's and like what the all it entailed. Story. Like yeah. record companies yeah. back then were sharks, man. Yeah, he fought it. They went to court, and the record company, you know, tried to like really, and lawyers tried to pressure them to, you know, just let it go. But they didn't, and so they didn't want to lose their songs. And they said at this point, like, really, all they had to lose were their songs, and had didn't have anything else to lose. So, you know, worst that could happen. Right. They thought it was, you know, what was going to happen anyway. They ended up. They were going to file Chapter 11 bankruptcy to get, you know, their publishing rights back and to get kind of out of the contract. And, of course, you know, record label was just super pissed with the move. And it also kind of made them look bad to other labels, too, because they're like, oh, you know, what are these guys that are, you know, right. they had a lot of respect, but they were still pretty new. But they they kept with it. They went on a little tour. They called, I think it was their bankruptcy tour or their lawsuit tour um, <laughs> to pay the legal bills. They wore shirts that they had made that said Y, like W-H-Y, um, M-C-A, which was funny. They were secretly recording at the time because if they anything that they were working on would be owned by them still by contract. Right. So they had somebody ready to take the tapes and hide them because if Tom knew where they were, then he, if he was questioned, he would have to you know lie in court so he never knew where the tapes were. Um, That's so awesome. Yeah. But they were working on Refugee and Here Comes My Girl, you know, for this album, which ended up being a huge album. But, oh, and when they recorded Refugee, I thought this was kind of interesting, they recorded live versions of the band playing. So they did like 150 takes just because they didn't want to piece anything together. Yeah, I guess um, there was another funny story, too, where Tom was at a meeting with the lawyers and the label. And he, because he was kind of like a little white trash kid from Florida. <laughs> so sometimes his behavior wasn't, you know, what you would expect. But he was sitting at the, the meeting with a pen knife and started like picking his nails. And it, it <laughs> they said it, you know, kind of looked like he was like putting on a tough show, but he just like really didn't think about it and was just like cleaning his nails with his pen knife. While they were recording, Jimmy Levine didn't really mesh well with Stan Lynch, the drummer, who was kind of a dickwad. Everything I read about the guy, he was like mouthy. <laughs> I guess he was horn. really fun. <laughs> yeah, I guess he was really fun and energetic too and um, a good drummer, but he didn't really like what he was doing. He said that sometimes slowed down the band and he didn't really want to do that. So um, sometimes he tried to encourage him to, you know, fire him or use a drum machine in songs or bring in other drummers <laughs> to work with them. I don't feel like doing this. You know what you could do? Get a drum machine. Yeah. Like, oh, what a douche. That is funny. Also, fun fact, Dame the Torpedoes really means full speed ahead. Just another way to say that. I didn't know that oh, until. Okay. The label caved because the lawsuit was still going on this whole time. And they gave them their own little label and their publishing nice. rights back. So, yeah, they um, still wanted to distribute their records, so they kept them on. So kind of everybody won a little bit. So yeah, Damn the Torpedoes was released in 1979, and this album did extremely well. They toured the world for the whole next year, and they started really making money. Awesome. Yeah, and they were all still pretty young at the time, too. Mm -hmm. 1981, Hard Promises came out. Tom's mother 
was extremely ill and he visited her after the day of the torpedoes to her. But then she, oh, and he, this was a crazy story, but he went to visit her in the hospital and she was, you know, out of it. She wasn't really waking up at this point, but the hospital staff had been like cutting out a bunch of Tom Petty newspaper. Yeah. And they, they laid them on his mom's like passed out body in the hospital bed. So he walked in and he didn't think it was cool at all because he... That's weird. Yeah, he thought it was weird that they like put him on her body because he was like, no, this is about her. This isn't about me. Yeah. You know, I'm visiting my sick mother in the hospital. Yeah, this is this is kitty petty. Yeah. <laughs> she, you know, she passed and they were, they were a little relieved because she'd been in a lot of pain and she'd been sick for a while. Poor kitty petty. Yeah, and then this was the... This is really sad, but he didn't go to her funeral, um, not because he didn't want to, but because, you know, where he was from, they made a huge deal about him possibly coming for the funeral, and he didn't want the focus to uh, be him. Yeah. He wanted uh, it to be rough. on her life, because he was really, really, really close with his mom, that and um, she was kind of his protector a lot. He with actually his dad and stuff. Yeah, yeah. She and his little brother stepped in a lot when he was, you know, when he was trying to beat Tom. But yet he said he, you know, wrestled with that decision the rest of his life, wondering if he made the right decision. Also this time, Stevie Nicks kind of came into the picture. She was a huge fan of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. She actually wanted to join the band, but they, mm-hmm. they wouldn't let her do it. And it, she was very famous at the time. So they ended up giving her that song instead to sing. Well, yeah. She was working on her first solo album and it was good, but it didn't, you know, really good, but it didn't have any like radio hits. She wanted him to write a song for, he said he didn't have time, but then like she was pretty relentless and he wrote Insider, which he wrote it about the grief of his mother passing. So he ended up actually, after he wrote it, he ended up keeping it. And, oh, she sang backup vocals on the song, though. But he ended up giving her Stop Dragging My Heart Around. Mm-hmm. And they both sang on that. It was really, it's a really cool song. She was st- or secretly dating Jimmy Levine at the time. <coughs> and when Tom would come over to, like, work on stuff, she would hide from him. Um, which is funny because she didn't, they didn't want, you know, him to think, oh, like, that's why you're really pushing me to work with this, oh. this lady. Ah, but mm-hmm. they, you know, they eventually became really good friends. She got a lot of the band members to work on her her album as well. She credits Tom for the success of her solo career. And she also, you know, befriended his wife, Jane, at the time. She had kind of always struggled with addiction. Stevie and, Nicks. Well, yeah. uh, Stevie Nicks too, but his wife. Oh, okay. And his yeah. wife um, and mental illness as well. But after she became friends with Stevie Nicks, her drug addiction yeah. got a lot worse. Yeah. Oh, and actually her song Edge of 17 was inspired by Tom's wife because she was talking about how they met at the age of 17. Mm-hmm. Um, but with her accent, it sounded like she said Edge of 17. <laughs> you know, another fun fact. At this time, the label decided to raise album prices and they were kind of you know, using Tom's, the the album that they were, you know, going to release at the time as a way to promote this and to, you know, kind of like, oh, everybody wants this Tom Petty album. But he once again decided to fight the label on this and... Um, I know they were like, oh, damn it, he's serious. Yeah. So (laughs) he was like very vocal about it with the media and gave a couple interviews around the time. Um, So he did delay it for a while. They were pretty exhausted after this. You know, they'd gone through, you know, some um, legal stuff and just working nonstop and touring. And they weren't all getting along. Things weren't working well with Ron Blair, their bassist. They were kind of hard on him because they were, you know, like I said, they were very stressed out and tired. But he ended up completely quitting the music business and opened up a bikini store. <laughs> um, okay. It was a, it a was random a, turn of events. Yeah. So they were just sick of it. It's um, like, you know what my dream job is? <laughs> Selling women bikini bikinis. Bikini salesman. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a very amicable split, though. And he remained friends with the band. 
Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's like <laughs> such a fucking random kid. No, very random choice. Like, yeah. Well, maybe he did well. Maybe it's still around. I mean, he's living his dream, apparently. Yeah. Like he, he's like, you know what? I don't want to be a rock star. I want to sell And I have enough money bikinis, that I can actually, you know, have a business and not really have to worry that's, about yeah, losing so a lot. So, hey, whatever. <laughs> so they were really worried about who was going to replace him. They didn't want just anybody because they had really good band chemistry. He, Tom, was working on producing an album for Del Shannon at the time, and he used Howie Epstein to play bass on that work. He ended up bringing him in um, to work with them. Yeah, he loved his style. He was a really good vocalist, too, and they said that he was a you know, super cool guy. They, they wanted to let in. Um, Del was pretty pissed that he kind of poached his bassist because he you know, was actively playing with the band, and they were getting ready to tour. But yeah, he instantly fit in with everybody. They really liked him. In 1982, they released Long After Dark. Didn't do as well as Hard Promises. They kind of blamed that on advice from Jimmy Levine because he, you know, had him take a couple songs off the record that were going to be on there, and they think that those would have been good hits. They made a mini movie for the video for Hard to Find. It was a um, sci-fi western. What? Um, yeah. I watched that. I know. I don't think I've seen it either, but then I wondered, like, if um, Cowboys inspire? and Aliens was inspired by it. Or Firefly. Yeah. <laughs> They, what, what year was this? It was... That, this came out? Long After Dark came in out in 1982, but it... Okay, so that's around the time people were doing kind of like epic music videos. Yeah. Then, yeah. So in 1985, they started working on their album Southern Accents. The band was doing a lot of drugs at the time and hanging out with kind of shady people. They, While they were working on a recording, Tom punched a wall and it did extensive damage to his hand. <laughs> Needed well. surgery and physical therapy and actually to get like shock therapy done on his hand because he couldn't like open and close it sometimes. Wow. Yeah. Part of the reason too, like that that same day, Mike Campbell had given shown him a bunch of songs that he wrote that he wanted to include on the album. And Petty kind of turned him down. He didn't really like some of the stuff. And one of the songs that he passed up ended up being um Don Henley's Boys of Summer. They, you know, he gave him that song. And he was oh. pretty pissed about that too, because it ended up being, you know, doing really well. Yeah. So he had found out that that had that day he found out that that, that was the song and it, you know, it was a hit. So he they said that, that kind of contributed to it too. So yeah, like recovered and then what? Yeah. And they Tom sobered up a lot because like I said, they were doing a lot of drugs at the time. And they decided to they wanted that album to be a double album, but they they didn't they just ended up having it be single album jimmy levine was also working on stevie nick's second album at the time and he wanted them to work with her again because you know she loved them tom suggested that she work with um, producer dave stewart and they asked him to go over and you know help him work on a song and stevie had been recording all day and was tired so she went to bed but tom and dave stewart ended up staying up all night and working on a song in the studio and they even like recorded and got the whole thing done, and he ended up keeping the song. Because <laughs> it was Don't Come Around Here No More. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, which I, I couldn't imagine anybody singing that other than him. Is that the... That's the video with, like, the Alice in Wonderland. Wonderland inspired. Yeah. 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 He was the Mad Hatter mm-hmm. in the video. Is that, like, the video where, like, the lady is, like, a cake or something, and they're, like, cutting in her... Is that that video? <sighs> it's when been he... so long since I've seen what that. What album was uh, the Coma song on? <laughs> We're getting <laughs> that was, like, there. Late, that was, like, late 80s. That was... I'll have to look for sure because I don't remember the exact date, but it was his first solo album. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Wait, what inspired that? Going solo. Well, we're, we're almost there. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Drugs. Too many drugs. Um, I don't know. So they, they decided to, they were asked to tour with Bob Dylan 
as they nice. he wanted them to open up and then also be his backing band at the time. They toured Australia with him, and Stevie Nicks actually went with Tom um, on that tour because he was kind of going through some stuff emotionally. His marriage was doing wasn't doing well, and he wanted his wife to go, but she wouldn't go, so Stevie went instead. But they ended up touring U.S., Europe, Japan with Bob. And they they like absolutely love playing with him, and they they improvise all the like, time. Like that's the exception to the rule. It's like no, we want to be the headliners. But when Bob Dylan asks you, you're like, yeah. you know what? Actually, that's a great idea. They were all really excited about that. But yeah, it made them such better musicians because they they sometimes you know play songs in a different way, different tempo, mm-hmm. um, and had to be ready for it. And you know, such a huge catalog of songs that they had to learn. 1987, he wrote, they put the album out, "Let Me Up, I've Had Enough," and it was kind of his like pre-divorce album. Some of the songs couldn't talk about what he was going through at the time. And someone burnt his house down. Um, what? Yeah, they they put something that, you know, caused the fire on, like, the back stairs of his house. But his family was in there. His one daughter, his oldest daughter was away, but his youngest daughter, Anna Kim, and Tom and the wife were home. Holy shit. Yeah, and they um, lost so much because stuff. Because of this album coming out, somebody's like, fuck this girl. Like, let's well, set the house on fire? Or, like, what? No, um, just it, a he random just been, act of... Yeah, they don't know, they never caught who wow. did it, so they don't know why they did it, but the person knew that, you know, they were home at the time, possibly was trying to kill him in the family. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah, which, why would you kill Tom Petty? <laughs> it was it was a leftover Mansonite. We were affiliated <laughs> with the people we tried to kill. Yeah, who knows? But it was actually on his wife's birthday too, which is really sad. But they ended up saving. He had a home studio, and they ended up saving um, a lot of his cars and some of that stuff. But he had a bunch of memorabilia, like music memorabilia, that was yeah, lost. Yes, yeah. Camaro. Okay. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> but a bunch of his friends rallied together, and Annie Lennox, Lennox even bought like his family a bunch of clothes to kind of get him through the next like couple months, which is really nice. I bet she bought him a bunch of like. I don't know. You think of Annie Lennox and how she had that kind of crazy <laughs> style. She bought him all these like unwearable for every day. Like, Probably. No. That's nice of her. So he took his family on tour with him for a while because they, you know, they didn't have anywhere to live and he was getting ready to, to tour. He had a birthday party where he celebrated his um, birthday with Bob Dylan, George Harrison, the band and his family, which was kind of cool. That sounds nice. Yeah, this is we're getting there. Okay, so he asked Jeff Lynn to work with him on after um, hearing one of George Al, um, Harrison's albums, his whole album, and they worked. You know, they were working on um, just writing, and they worked with Jeff and Roy Orbison on the song "You Got It." And this eventually turned into the Traveling Wilburys, kind of sort of by accident. And mm-hmm. oh yeah, because they were they like those guys were writing together, and then they had nowhere to record, so they ended up recording at Dylan's studio. But soon after they like put the album out and toured, Roy Orbison died. Um, this is after the, the album had already gone platinum. Mm-hmm. So kind of a good way to go if you're a musician, yeah, uh, working with like some of the greatest people out yeah. there. So we continued working with Jeff Lynne and Mike Campbell on some songs, which became Tom's first solo album. So yeah, I know I've talked a lot, but finally got there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the band wasn't very happy about it. They didn't really know what his intentions were and thought that maybe you know that was going to be the end of things. He tried to include them on some of the songs, but they kind of weren't enjoying it. Like Benmont, Lynch you know, kind of did a few things, but had a bad attitude about it and how he wouldn't play on free falling because he didn't like the song. Um, Little did he know it was the coma awakening. (laughs) Right. On that album, you know, free falling, won't back down, running down a dream, facing the crowd. Like all the hits. All the hits. Yeah. And at the time, um, (laughs) which was funny, you know, his solo album, which I don't think I said the name of it yet, which Full Moon Fever, that was nominated for um, album of the year for Grammy. He brought in Scott 
Thurston to work on that the album with him and support him on the tour. And he was like a multi-instrumentalist and utility guy. He worked with Iggy Pop, Ike and Tina Turner, The Motels. <laughs> so that was nominated for Grammy for Best Album. Um, also the Traveling, Travel, uh, Traveling Wilburys album. And then Don Henley's End of, In- End of Innocence, which Campbell and Lynch had worked on. So it was kind of funny, like all three were, you know, Except somehow connected. Except one of Summer on it, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Free Falling also was kind of written on, like, a little toy Casio keyboard, which was kind of funny. But, oh, and his album, MCA didn't like the solo album at first. They, you know, kind of turned it down. So he had talked with Warner Brothers and kind of signed this like hidden contract because he was still obligated to you know work with MCA at the time um um, you know they eventually got behind the album but it did get put out luckily and it was very very successful so the band started working on their album um in 1990 into the great wide open and um Jeff Lynn who had produced his solo album, worked with them. He usually didn't work with bands, but he agreed to do it because he, you know, really liked them. But yeah, on this album, in the studio, the the band was still kind of mad at him after the solo album. So they didn't hang out like they usually did. They just kind of came in for their parts and there was a lot of tension lingering from, you know, that. (laughs) Johnny Depp and Faye Dunaway actually starred in the video for Into the Great Wide Open. And it was... Like, I wonder if he... Did Johnny Depp ever play with him at all or no? No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, not. I mean, this could have happened later. I bet later on he probably did at some point, but... Um, interesting. Just yeah. So this album also had Learning to Fly on it, which was a big one. But that that video was seven and a half minutes long and did play on MTV, which... Is great. I, don't, I don't remember ever seeing that. I don't either. Yeah. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of Tom Petty videos, even like years and years after they came out, they would still like. I mean, when I was a kid, I remember the Alice in Wonderland video. But yeah. that was like ten years after it came out. You right. know what I mean? But they would still play it pretty regularly. Like pretty but I don't heavily. remember. I don't remember that one with. Any I know. Fade on away. Yeah. Oh well. <laughs> he started working on his second solo album, The Time Wildflowers, and he used all of the band except Stan Lynch, the drummer. He. Wait, is that the douchebag? Yeah. Yeah, so he's like, you know what? Fuck that guy. Yeah. You don't get in on this. That's funny. They worked with producer... It's a power move. Yeah. (laughs) They worked with producer Rick Rubin at the time, and Steve Ferrone came in and played drums on the album. Stan kind of wanted to pursue some other projects at the time, and they kind of used this to get out of their contract with MCA. I'm sorry, I'm going to just, like, laugh for a second, because (laughs) earlier today... um, there was a spider and Olivia had me kill it because she's very afraid of them. And so while she was like, just like, didn't miss a beat right there, but she just points to the spider and I had to get up I had and kill no it. idea what was going yeah. on. It was like, I thought you just like got like up she to didn't miss a beat. And I know that like, I'm totally interrupting this, but like, it was just really funny because she's just still talking about it. And like, I'm just casually get up and stomp this son <laughs> of a bitch. Then you knew exactly what I meant by yeah. the point. <laughs> like the look in your eye of like sheer terror and then the point, And then it was just like, Seamless. And I'm oblivious to everything. And Lindsay's just like, what is happening? <laughs> I'm so sorry, but I just had to no, put that. Like, people need to know. <laughs> they need to know what's happening. <laughs> okay, continue. Okay. <laughs> they wanted to bring back out that Warner Brothers record that he had signed and that had, you know, sat in a safe for a while. So they agreed to, you know, to kind of get out of the, the deal. They agreed to release like this massive greatest hits and write a new song for it, which ended up 
being Mary Jane's Last Dance. So I think that album went like nine times platinum. Yeah, that's like the unofficial Indiana song. Yeah. It's true. (laughs) We are all Indiana girls. Yes. And uh, yeah, I don't feel like you live in this state without knowing every fucking word to that song. Yeah. And like, if you don't, then you're not a true Hoosier. Yeah. (laughs) You know, other random thing. They ended up opening or playing opening night of Johnny Depp's Viper Room Club. And since Stan... Wait, that's his club? I didn't know that. Yeah, that what? that was his club. Do you remember? That's where River Phoenix, River Phoenix died. died. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know it was. I didn't know it was Johnny Depp's yeah. club. Yeah, that like was nineteen ninety three. Oh yeah, and that was kind of like it for Stan. He was out after that. I don't think he even. I don't. I don't remember. I this one I kind of screwed up, but um, he either didn't show up for the performance, and they had to have someone stand in, or he, that was like his last. I think it was his last performance. He they told him they were going to have someone else. Oh, they told him that they were going to have Ringo come, <laughs> but um, he ended up showing up. But then, watch out, man, we're going to get Ringo. <laughs> yeah, but then for their Saturday Night Live performance, they ended up getting Dave Grohl to sing because this was you know after Nirvana at the time. That's awesome. Like yeah. that's a great pitch hitter right yeah. there. Right. Like they wanted cool. him to join the band, but he really? kind of had Foo Fighters already in his head. Yeah, yeah. In the works. So, That's so dope. Yeah. They asked, you know, Ferone instead because he, or Ferone, he had just finished touring and backing Johnny Cash. Nice. Just random. They also contributed for that She's the One movie soundtrack. And, oh, in 1989, they started working on Echo. And it was kind of his post-divorce album. He was in this like massive depression at the time and started using heroin really regularly. Mm. Neither one of the parents were taking care of the kids at the time. The oldest daughter had to start raising the the 13-year-old daughter, um, Anna Kim. Yeah, Yeah. because both parents were pretty useless. He met his, you know, what became his wife at the time, and she kind of helped him get over the drug addiction. Um, He went into the hospital, and they did the... That you know how they do like the detox mm-hmm. um, while you're passed out. So he was out for two days, and but while they were working on the album in the studio, he couldn't even really work on writing songs. So they ended up like bringing in little word magnets, and they would kind of lay them out to try mm-hmm. to help like guide him along because he was so you know out of it at the time. Mm-hmm. Dang. Yeah, but he ended up marrying Dana, his wife, and then they started in 2002 working on, or they you know put out the album Last DJ which was kind of his comment on the changing music industry yeah, and media industry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How we started really deteriorating at the time, their bassist, he was using drugs pretty bad. And at this time, they were also inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Past members came and were present. And who, who do you think inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Oh my God, are you going to make fun of me again? It <gasps> no, was, it, it was, I was not any better. It was not any better, but <laughs> Thank God. I was going to um, <laughs> I think I just got like the cold sweats. Like, yeah, oh, hold on. I want to think about this. Um, it's like somebody that's that's already been mentioned today. Well, connected to someone that's been mentioned, so it would be kind of a hard guess, but okay, um, never mind. Jacob Dylan. Oh, which is pretty nice. cool. Yeah. yeah. Very, very attractive guy. Mm-hmm. I concur. Yeah. <laughs> he, you know, like I said, how he really deteriorated. He didn't even do very well with the performance. He couldn't really play his bass very well. Mm. So Ron Blair, the bikini guy, kind of came back into the picture. <laughs> the bikini guy. Yeah. Because <laughs> the bikini business was failing. I know. I'm like, I'm so curious. Like, I'm going to look up so many things about Ron Blair later yeah. tonight. Yeah. Like, I want to know, like, did he meet the girl of his dreams at the bikini shop? I know. Is the bikini shop still going? That's what right? I was wondering. Like, is it 
I just have so many questions. Like, or did he like have to pack up the now? bikini Maybe business and like... close it because he got back in the band? Because how he died, yeah. unfortunately, I don't know if I said uh, that, that yeah. yet. No, but, you didn't. But... Yeah, and um, Stan Lynch, the the past drummer, kind of held it against the band. He didn't think that they did enough for him. But I guess they really tried to get him sober, and it just didn't. You know, I think it's one of those things. If unless you want to, it doesn't really work. Yeah, you can't blame anybody else for your own sobriety. Yeah, yeah. like you can't. You make your own decisions. Yeah, so 2006, another solo album, Highway Companion with Jeff Lynch, and then um, reformed Mud Crutch in 2007. <laughs> yeah, um, I remember. That's, that's when my dad was telling yeah. me about it, and I was like, who? What? I just with, feel like they need like that, like just Mud Crutch, like, like their shitty radio DJ voice. Oh, you know? yeah. <laughs> we're going to go to Ozfest, and we're going to listen to Black Sabbath, Mud Crutch. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it really does sound a little more like... It does. <laughs> Heavy than it really is, I guess. I don't know. He got Randall Marsh, Tom, um, I'm, yeah, I always butcher this guy's name, is Ledin, Leiden, um, Ben Montench, and Mike Campbell. How do you, you know, spell it? L-E-A-D-O-N. Leiden. Leiden. Yeah, maybe that, maybe mm. that, like I was all wrong on all of them. So they toured briefly, and then they released their for, first album in 2008 called Mud Crutch One. 2010, <laughs> the Heartbreakers released um, Mojo. And then, oh, before that, I forgot. Um, 2008, they played the Super Bowl halftime show. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That was, that yeah. was a good halftime show. I feel like in the last few years, they've really kind of been struggling to get... Oh, well, yeah. that, it seems Cause, cause like they the last... mix people, and I don't know what's yeah, like that. It yeah, yeah. No, because I mean, in the last 10 or 15 years, they've had, like, they had Tom Petty, and they had Prince, and they had... They had McCartney, too, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. And um, I think one. Springsteen was pretty recent. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, like, kind of after all of that... Yeah. How do you? Right. How do you like get somebody <laughs> decent? But they released a, a live recording recording album in 2009 too. But then I said, you know, 2010, um, Heartbreakers released Mojo, and then 2014, Hypnotic Eye, and then 2016, there was another Mud Crutch album, which was called Mud Crutch Two. On oh yeah, this is, this actually. This is gonna be fun. They they toured for their tour, their 30th anniversary tour, and guess who opened for them? I don't want to. Pearl Jam. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I was yeah. going to be like, the kinks. <laughs> what if they, they had this um, That really would be good funny. <laughs> that, that would, would be been ironic. <laughs> I mean, yeah. They had a, there's a really good documentary that I'll have to put the name up on Instagram because I forgot the name of it, but it was, it was like four hours long, but I was going to have you watch it. But in the first like 10 minutes, um, <laughs> Eddie Vedder shows up. So I was like, oh no, never mind. <laughs> Keep <laughs> this far get, away from Kendra. Yeah. Kendra's going to get See, triggered. you're a lot nicer than I'm going to be like, hey, Kendra, you have to watch this. It's really great. <laughs> right. And then just let her suffer. <laughs> oh man. The amount of people that give me shit about my hatred of Pearl Jam. Yeah. Never ceases to amaze me. Looking <laughs> for it, though, by having such a venomous opinion. Well, oh, you know, like, Pearl Jam is open for, like, tons of bands that you love or, like, tons of bands you love have opened so for them. They're so affiliated, and they're probably, like, the nicest dudes ever. I, I just know. can't stand them. Like, yeah. I remember my uncle was going to take me to see, like, this was, like, 2001. He was going to take me to see Pearl Jam because Sonic Youth was opening. Um, and then I know somebody that saw them and Iggy Pop was opening. Oh, dang. <laughs> like, yeah. People That'd I love. Cool. I know, I know. <laughs> so sadly, on October 2nd, 2017, Tom died of cardiac arrest. He, it was complications after taking fentanyl after mm-hmm. a hip surgery. Mm. And that's what happened to Prince too. Yeah. Yeah. That's sad. Yeah. And then this was, um, I hate to end it on this, but right after that in 2019, they found out that back in 2008, there was a fire, a universal fire 
and a bunch of their bunch of artist material was destroyed yeah. and they oh, were yeah. that was a big one. Yeah. So unfortunately, you know, I hate to end that on that, but that's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy like, that it took them that long to figure out that that ha- you know yeah. who was affected that they kept it in yeah. wraps. Well, um, I, I hate to say this, Olivia, but you left out one of the most important points in his career, uh, doing the voice of Lucky Kleinschmidt on King of the Hill. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah, he even kind of looks like him. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. yeah, I watched yeah. like some of that show because my dad is obsessed like, with it. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was in kind of the like later seasons, but I think that show ended in what, like 2009, so it was, it was yeah. probably like mid-2000s. Yeah. Wasn't Brad Pitt one of the voices on that too? He probably... Like or something? Oh, no, he... um No, Boomhauer is, is just Mike Judge. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. I don't know where I got that. Uh, no, he, he actually just, like, uh, he actually got that voice from like a... Uh, an angry viewer of Beavis and Butthead that like oh. left a message on his answering machine. It was like, dang, all my <laughs> <laughs> uh, No, I, I, I mean, there were, there were a lot of like pretty big names that were just in like one episode. Yeah. So, um, I love, I love it when, the I know like Matthew McConaughey, have, like, these famous people. I know. Yeah. I know like, Murphy Matthew McConaughey was on, was on one for, uh, he, he like played Luann's boyfriend or something. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there were a bunch of, that's pretty cool. A bunch of random celebrity, uh, voice, but all right let's talk about comas i don't know why i reach for that piece of paper like it's mine like i yeah um well first let's talk about your coma oh i uh it was in 2008 it was in march and uh i was still living with my mom and i went home from work the night before i just felt really awful and then the next day i still felt super shitty i thought i just had like a really bad flu or something and my mom came home from work at like five o'clock that night and I was like passed out on my floor looking all creepy, like eyes open, yeah. you know. And uh, so she called an ambulance and they came and got me. And when they got to the hospital, they did a spinal tap because I had complained that my neck was hurting mm-hmm. like earlier in the day. So they found out that I had bacterial meningitis and I didn't wake up for a few days. And when I did, I was so confused. Yeah. There wasn't a song or anything that brought me out of it. In the meantime. Yeah. Yeah. Kendra, this was, this really affected Kendra. I mean, it didn't affect me because my ass was just asleep. I'm like, your poor mom. I'm fine. Oh Oh yeah. So like everybody around me is a wreck and I'm just, I'm just sleeping. (laughs) I'm just hanging. From my perspective. (laughs) I'm in my first apartment. I am 21, 22 years old. I think I was. Wait, I don't remember what. I was 20, so yeah. yeah so I was yeah. like 22. Yep, just uh, living with my boyfriend and all that. and uh, Casual phone call from my dad at 7 at 7 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> which like her dad never calls me. And he's I didn't like, even knew that he had your number. Like, well, I guess <laughs> you must have gotten it from your phone or something. Yeah, so probably. anyway, like, he called me. I'm like, whose number is this? And like, I, but like, why would anybody call me at 7 a.m.? Like, I just had this feeling. Yeah. And he's like, this is Lindsay's dad. Uh, Lindsay's in the hospital. And I'm like, I just started crying because I'm like still asleep. And he's like, yeah, she has meningitis. And I was just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And he's like, I need you to talk to the Board of Health. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, the Board <laughs> of like Health. She had to, out. like, tell them all about, like, the people that I hung out with so that they could take all the, like, prophylactic pills to make yeah. sure that they didn't get it. Yeah. They came into my cosmetology school and gave them to all my, like, close friends I there. Like, I took the day off work to go visit her at the hospital, and then she was still... What was it in the ICU? It? You're in the ICU, but, like, they, you were in, like, a safe room, so, like, you had to put on a hazmat suit to go, like, into the room. Oh, Because okay. she was still contagious with uh, the antibiotics and stuff like that. 
had oh. taken effect yet. That's sweet of you to go in. I wouldn't have. I couldn't. I couldn't because I could there was only one person in that at time, and your mom was in there with you. Yeah. But I saw her. Did the little leave or whatever. But then, yeah, yeah uh, the people from the Board of Health was like, yeah, just give me, like, 10. And I just, like, drove around all day, like, <laughs> giving out, like, these, like, medicine for anyone that, like, touched her that weekend. <laughs> yeah, so it's it was... pretty crazy. And then she woke yeah. up. I don't even dope. remember, like... I definitely don't remember, like, the exact moment that I woke up. I just kind of remember drifting in and out of consciousness. Like, I remember waking up and kind of thinking, like why is my whole entire extended family in this room with me? Like, I couldn't really process it. Yeah. And then I kind of just go back to sleep. And then I woke up at one point, my sister was getting ready to go to, like, a school dance, and she was all, like, dressed up and stuff and, like, came to see me first. And I was, like, really confused. I was, like, who is this? Because it didn't look like her at all. Yeah. And then um, I woke up another time. My friend Eric was just, like, feeding me jello, and it was, like, dripping <laughs> down my shirt. And I'm, like, what is going on here? And then once... Once I became, like, more aware of everything, I was so... I mean, I don't... When you've been asleep for, like, four days, you feel like absolute garbage when you wake up. Like, I felt so horrible. Like, Like, every time I would get up and try to walk, like, to the bathroom or anything, I felt like I was just going to fall over. Like, I was so dizzy and, you know, I was just, like, pumped full of all these, like, medicines and stuff that it was... And, and, and I was convinced that once I kind of started to, like, piece together what had happened and everything, I, uh... I was still convinced that like I wasn't going to make it because I felt so horrible and everybody's like, no, the worst part is over. You're fine. And I'm like, why do I feel so horrible then? They're like, Mm -hmm. because you've been asleep for four days and your (laughs) brain was being infected. Like, yeah, yeah, you're going to feel like shit. You literally had a brain infection. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. And then at one point they brought in like some therapy dogs. They brought in like a golden retriever Uh and like, and I was like petting them and I'm like, this is, this is really over. This is serious. They're bringing me the therapy dogs. I'm going to (laughs) die. Like, But then I, I think I was in the hospital for like eight days and like the last two days I was there were pretty awesome because I was sort of starting to feel better and like they would give me food and stuff and I just always felt like I was going to throw up whenever I ate and I was yeah. finally like able to eat stuff again and I would like buzz the nurse to go get me chicken tenders at like two o'clock uh-huh. in the morning and stuff because I was so hungry and 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 I started feeling pretty good like the last couple of days. I'm like, I could stay a little longer. It'd be fine. Yeah. But uh Yeah. I don't know. That was her coma story. Yeah. Coma story. <laughs> so I was looking into a little bit about, you know, people that woke from comas to music and cause I can't find that exact fact or like any of this information to support it. And I, I dug and dug online, but this is the article that I read. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's the same one. This article looks like it was ABC news written by Megan Holohan. Um, but it talks about a, a seven-year-old girl from England that slipped into a coma and woke up to an Adele song. And they, you know, while researching it, they decided that it was because um, the salient stimulus, it was something that she was familiar with, a song that she heard with her mom a lot. And that was confirmed by Dr. Emery Neal Brown, professor of anesthesia at Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School and professor of computational neuroscience at MIT. Yeah, yeah, that that was kind of a kind of a short article, but it was kind of good at ex- explaining things in yeah. you know, kind of simple terms. Just that you know things that would bring out like emotional response, yeah. and people kind of trigger the brain to you know wake up. So, like, if you guys were to wake up from a coma, then oh, what what song do you feel like would do that? So many, but. I got I like got like so into the strokes for a while. I feel like maybe anything off of this is it or is this it? I feel like something fucking ridiculous. I, I think I've I said fuck more in this podcast than I, <laughs> I do. But it's, it's fine. Just, I haven't really talked all day, so it's all just like coming out. I've like literally yeah. just sat in silence all day. 
Kendra, I would play all the most ridiculous songs for you if you were in a coma. I'm like, come on, something has to work. Yeah, like watch me like wake up to like a leftover crack song or something. Well, I like have a lot of hatred for that, you know, that Hey Now or an All Star or you're an All Star oh, song. Oh my god, yeah. yeah. I fucking Smash Mouth, which I hate them anyway, and I hate Walking on the Sun, but yeah, I think that would probably trigger something with me, and I'd like it would wake just up trigger like anger. Rage. Yeah. Oh rage. well, then. Pearl Jam yeah. works like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to play Pearl Jam for Kendra. I would never forgive you. <laughs> I would never forgive you. You like, would just like flatline as soon as I came in. <laughs> I was like, like, like oh, shit. I'm out. I'm out. Pearl Jam literally <laughs> killed her. I'm sorry, Kendra. <laughs> oh my gosh. I gave on like think I had some good ones in my brain today because I knew I was going to ask that question, but I just kept on thinking of like all these like ridiculous butt rock songs. I'm like, yeah, like that sounds like it would be epic. Like. How stupid would it be if you like woke up to like pour some sugar on me? I know, <laughs> or like something like that. Cherry like, pie. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Oh I'm playing. I'm playing Pearl Jam for you. Like, I'm like, still alive. Oh wait, shit. No, you're not. I feel like if I were to ever wake up from a coma, like the most epic thing ever would, you know, put on post mortem into raining blood. <laughs> My Slayer, just the, once the, like, lightning and thunderstorm sounds happen, like the, <laughs> and you were just like, rise. and then, like, I would, like, as soon as, like, the first, <laughs> like, I think I would pop up right at that moment, and like, <laughs> like, just play some shitty air guitar, because that's what I do every time I hear that song. Makes me really, really excited <laughs> about my life. Like, that song gets me pumped. Yeah. And it's, like, the dumbest. I fucking love it, though. Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> I just saw Slayer this weekend and... Or, like, last weekend. Not this weekend. Yeah. Uh, I'm still, like, really pumped about it. Yeah, the article says that um, music causes a different reaction in the brain because it processes music and songs differently than spoken language. And the region of the brain responsible for song might be working better while the rest is lagging behind. They have patients that have had strokes that can sing, but they can't speak yet, which is, you know, I thought that was really interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, Robin Gibb of the Bee Gees actually woke from a coma to music. What song? It didn't didn't say. say. Like, was it one of his own songs? Was it? Because that would make sense that he would awake from that because, you know, he would be super, super familiar with just every, you know. No, because, like, I would feel, I don't know about you guys, but, like, I don't like to, like, sit around and listen to music that I've written. It's uncomfortable. Oh, yeah, no, I just Maybe meant, because like, I never took part in, like, the, the writing process. I Because I always really liked listening to the songs. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know, like, I but mean. I, yeah, and I loved listening to practices. Do you, like, because, I mean, you can tell a lot about, like, what's, you know, what needs work and, no, and stuff. No, like, honestly, yeah. like, I don't really like listening to music I'm a part of. It's. Yeah. It's not that I don't like it. Like, I think that they're good songs and stuff like that. But I think my tendency is just to always think that I could have done better. Yeah. And, like, be a little disappointed. So I don't want... Why ruin something that everybody else is, like, satisfied with? Yeah. If you showed me a video of a live recording, I'd probably, like, cry and throw up because I, like, hated watching (laughs) Yeah, I don't like that either. Or, like, I sound... I'll hear my inner voice or whatever and be like, yeah, I'm killing it tonight. And then I'll see a video. Oh, Oh, yeah. You always sound so weird I'm, like, an octave lower than I thought I was. Like... Yeah, everybody's voice always sounds... Do I speak this low? (laughs) Oh, I do. I speak very low. I always (laughs) made, like, really weird faces when I was playing guitar. I had to chew gum to try to avoid it because I make really weird, like, John Mayer faces. Oh, I love guitar face, though. It's so funny. Like... I love Some watching pull it off better. guitar players and like, and it it's always funny because it's a lot of my friends play guitar, so like be like staring at them, yeah, like when they're playing. But it's like, no, I'm like just waiting for the guitar face to pop out, like when that solo hits, because it's always like that, like, 
Like, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, the lips pucker in a different way or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And I also really like watching drummer faces. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it just said something about, like, for Robin Gibb, it said, you know, it, it, it just seems very likely that that would have happened just because, you know, he was a professional musician who, like, sang with his brothers. And so that's, yeah. like, a deep, like, emotional Yeah. That makes sense. Reaction, so. They did a study. Uh, this was on PubMed.com. There was a study done on 40 patients that were in comas. And they, you know, 20 of them were selected to be treated with like music therapy and then 20 weren't but then this is this kind of throws it off a little bit but they they had the same nurses work with the the patients that um, were listening to the music and then they didn't for the other one which that throws it off a little bit but anyway um the the patients that listened to the music woke soon like some of them woke sooner and they like they just did better which I thought was kind of an interesting thing I wish they had a little bit more published about the study but yeah I think everybody needs to take preemptive measures with this information Oh right. yeah, start like, like listening to yeah no like make yourself a coma playlist <laughs> yeah like they, they do there's one oh, online shit, um there's a coma playlist that I found online that um, somebody's done like just in case yeah. I'm in a coma point me this shit something's gonna trigger me awake yeah like yeah. it's gonna happen like I've, I that's my new mission like so anyone that is listening to this I challenge you to make yourself a coma playlist that way it's in case of emergency somebody yeah. can grab your phone and be like I wonder. On their Spotify, is there, or on their iTunes or whatever, is there a coma playlist? And if there is, like, play that bitch. Be tight. <laughs> I saw, um, when I was looking stuff up, I saw this, like, 10 songs that have woken people from comas. One yeah. of them was was uh, That Your Beautiful Song by James Bond. If I heard that shit, I'd be like, put me back oh, in a fucking yeah, coma. Kill song. me. I don't care. You're beautiful. <laughs> I didn't like the way you sang at all. That's yeah. You know. You know what I'm talking no, about. I have to hear that at work all the time. Like, I just like, <laughs> I try to pretend like pop music doesn't happen. Yeah. Because I, I'm a hairstylist and I've worked in two different salons that like to play like the soft rock. Like I'm lucky at the one that I'm at now, they let me make a work playlist. Mm-hmm. And so... It's like everybody's it's like, like sitting around humming, like un- unknowingly, like sitting around humming and knowing other words to these like really obscure indie rock songs, yeah. and like they're like, "Oh, this one's got a good beat." <laughs> like completely oblivious. It's like I learned cool. to tune so much out from working at salons because um, mm-hmm. they'd play such terrible stuff. And then when I worked at the music store, too, like some of the stations were good and some of them were so bad. But you, and regardless, you hear the same songs over and over and over yeah. again. I remember like working at H and M when I was in beauty school. And it's like everyone that I worked with at that time, like had ended up getting like a fascination with Interpol and the Killers. Oh, because yeah, because they played it all the time. <laughs> I like both those bands. I, like I know, like I have no yeah. problem with those bands because I was like, they come on H&M and always had like a decent. We're like, yeah. all right, all right, and it's like this is like the time of like scene hair and everything too. So oh, yeah. we were like all about it. I guess my question is, since one, we don't even really know if this, like, I dreamed up this fact or if it's actually true do you think that it's true that i think people... it makes sense i do like, too if you oh, think yeah, about absolutely. like lyrical content and having that triumphant chorus of like i'm free i'm yeah. free fallen like if you felt like you were like trapped in your body and like you needed to wake up i think that is a good song to wake up to mm-hmm. yeah i put it on my coma playlist and it was on yeah, you know the, the radio so much and you hear you know heard it's, it in stores so, that so would... familiar with that song yeah. just generally that yeah yeah and yeah and if it, you were alive in the 90s you heard that song mm-hmm. 100% yeah also anybody that has any interest read the petty book it is so fucking good i'm reading it for a second time like back to back because i liked it there's so i'm like i said so many stories and so many people that he came in contact with but just such an interesting career and 
interesting guy, nice guy. I, I didn't know that much about him. I knew a lot of his music, but I didn't know anything mm-hmm. really about him personally at the time. So yeah, definitely check out that book. I will. That sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, if you have any great conspiracy theories that you want to send us, um, mm-hmm. please do at ourmusicodcast at gmail.com. And also, if you find that pop-up video, um, let me know and you get a sticker, like for I sure. said before. But <laughs> just a reminder. And also, thanks for everybody for voting on which design they liked yes. the best. Um, yes. so you picked a good one. We, we changed our picture on Instagram. We have it on all of our different sites yeah. yet, but we will. The time is coming. Yeah. <laughs> the stickers will be made. It shall be glorious. I'm trying to think. Oh, yeah. Then join us next time when we talk about um, Tom DeLonge from Blink-182. <gasps> oh, and, and the aliens. And all the yes. aliens. Yes. <laughs> it's going to be fun. I'm excited. Um, this is our music podcast. Thanks for listening. And see ya. Good night. <laughs>